My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. This podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. I pray that as you listen to them, they will be a blessing to you and strengthen you in your walk with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. A poem written by St. Ephraim, taken from Hymns of Paradise. Let us give thanks to God, who clothed himself in the name of the body's various parts. Scriptures refer to his ears, to teach us that he listens to us. It speaks of his eyes, to show that he sees us. It was just the names of such things he put on. And although in his true being there is no wrath or regret, yet he put on these names because of our weaknesses. It is our metaphors that he put on, though he did not literally do so. He then took them off without actually doing so. When wearing them, he was at the same time stripped of them. He puts on one when it is beneficial then strips it off in exchange for another. The fact that he strips off and puts on all sorts of metaphors tells us that the metaphor does not apply to his true being because that being is hidden. He has depicted it by means of what is visible. Thank you for reading that poem. A little bit of a different opening this morning. St. Ephraim the Syrian whose Lenten prayer we just prayed a few moments ago and have been praying over the last few years here. He's considered by many people to be one of the greatest poets and composers of hymns that the church has ever produced alongside such luminaries as Dante. He's venerated as a saint by both the Western and the Eastern church, pretty much all branches. He wrote in Syriac, a dialect of Aramaic, which according to scholars was the common language of much of the Middle East from the 4th to 7th centuries. And some of the sources we have on him are very late and some have some pretty spurious stories, but what we do know about him is that he was born around 306 and died in 373. His parents were both Christians and he lived in the city of Nisbis and he served three bishops there by, quote, preaching, teaching, writing, and fighting against heresies, all to keep careful guard over the whole flock of Christ. He later moved to Edessa, where he died serving the poor and sick during a severe famine. Somebody wrote of him, quote, as displayed in his writings, his theological method, often labeled symbolic theology, is an intricate weave of parallelism, typology, names, and symbols. And I think that was most clearly evident in the poem that Cindy just read, which is uh, one of his reflections on and writing about the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ taking on, on flesh. And you see his use of parallelism, typology, names, and symbols by saying things like scripture referring to his ears to teach us that he listens to us. It speaks of his eyes to show that he sees us and that he puts the names of these things on and takes them off again. And St. Ephraim is, is fairly meaningful for me, brothers and sisters, because I was first introduced to some of his work when I attended some services at my French church many years ago. And I think that his, his hymns and his prayers are well worth your time if you're ever interested. Uh, more, uh, they're very excellent and, and well worth your time reading. 
um, and uh, as part of your own devotional life. But what he's most well known for that's lasted throughout all the ages is the simple prayer that we add to our own during Lent. It was short, easily memorable, and incredibly powerful. And, and I think that the Lenten prayer of St. Ephraim in particular, I think it's the, one of the perfect distillations of the Christian life, our, our struggles encapsulated in the remedy that God grants to us. And so in this uh, sermon this morning, I'm going to talk about the first line from the Lenten prayer of St. Ephraim. O Lord and Master of my life, take from me the spirit of sloth, despair, or despondency, lust of power, and idle talk. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take those four things that he's asking to be taken away from him, and we're going to look at examples in Scripture to give us a better understanding of what we're asking of the Lord. So before, we're going to start right away now here with despondency or despair despondency or despair. And I think there's a wonderful story in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, that goes like this. Ahab told Jezebel that all Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. It's the prophets of Baal. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under the broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. Now this story, to me, brothers and sisters, is interesting because it comes right on the heels of one of the most spectacular miracles that we see in the Old Testament. Elijah challenging Ahab and Jezebel and their prophets of the false god Baal that they served to a whose god is greater contest. And if you've read this story before, you may have even heard a, a, a safer version told in Sunday school of the prophets of Baal setting up a sacrifice site and praying and asking Baal to send fire and Baal doesn't do it and they pray and they dance around for hours and they cut themselves as part of their rituals to, to, to get Baal to, to show up um, and to send fire upon their sacrifice. All the while, Elijah mocks them relentlessly. He says things like, Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's in the bathroom and doesn't want to come out. And if you don't believe me, go read 1 Kings. It's right in there. He actually does say that. Maybe your God's in the toilet. Not in the toilet, but maybe he's on the toilet and he can't be bothered to come out and answer your prayers. And here's something that we kind of miss about that story. is The prophets of Baal doing this, they have a ritual expectation that Baal is going to answer. And if that's the case, then that means they must have received answers like this from Baal in the past. And we tend to sanitize or demythologize the Old Testament in particular in the scriptures, but the scriptures don't see themselves from the lens of 21st century skepticism and materialism. And in the scriptures, the belief is not that there aren't other gods except the God of Israel. The belief is that there are many gods or divine beings, but the God of Israel is the true and only God, and that all comes from him. And all of the gods uh, rebelled against him, 
were angelic servants that initially had served him, but took worship upon themselves. Elijah takes his sacrifice, and he makes it more difficult by digging a trench around the altar. Right? He takes 12 stones from the, for the 12 tribes, he builds an altar, he lays the wood, he puts the animal on top, then he douses everything with water and has them fill the trench with water. Then Elijah prays a simple prayer. God, we're sitting here having this, who's God is greater contest? Please answer me so everyone can see and know that you are the true and only God. And what happens in this story? God answers. God answers. When I was a little kid, I only learned this recently, I used to think that it was a giant fireball that God sends down from heaven, right? But Baal was a storm god, a, a storm god, which when you think back then about the story of Elijah and Ahab and Elijah saying that there's going to be a drought for three years, it's showing the, the whose God is greater even there to King Ahab before we even get to this point in the story, that his God is able to keep the storms and the rains and the lightning from coming. And so God, the God of Israel, immediately answers with lightning because that's how Baal would work. And God immediately answers and immolates everything, the water, the wood, the stones, all of it. And Elijah kills all the prophets of Baal and he wins an incredible victory. That's the part I never heard at Sunday school. Cindy, I don't know if you had that part when you teach the kids, but I never learned that part until I started reading the Bible for myself and discovered that later. After this was all over, Elijah takes all the prophets of Baal, I think there's 400 of them in Asherah, and he executes all of them down by the river. This amazing victory. Jezebel hears about it, threatens his life, and what does he do? Does he say, here I am, come at me, bro? No, he gets scared and he runs. And he hides, afraid for his life. I think it's fair to say Elijah... Ha well, would it be fair to say, brothers and sisters, that Elijah had faith? Yeah. We, we see that he has faith because you know, we see what preceded this and, and the other works that he performed uh, in, in when we read 1 Kings. And I think it would be an overreach or reading into the text too much the assertion that Elijah was maybe bipolar or suffering from, a de from depression. I think sometimes we tend to over-psychologize the biblical text. But what we do see is a man running away in fear and becoming despondent and despairing, so much so that he even despairs of life itself. He says, Lord, please, I'm the only one left. Take my life. Take my life. He flees to Mount Horeb and has an encounter with God himself. And God renews him and retasks him and sends him on a mission. And he leaves and he obeys. It's odd that sometimes after us having an intense spiritual experience or sense of God's presence or a palpable sense of God's love and care that we fall prey to despair or despondency. Has anybody ever had that? Maybe in your prayer time you had this, you just had a time of prayer, it felt like you were, got lost and you had a sense of God's love in your heart that you had never experienced before. And then right after that, maybe a day later, there's this massive crash of despair. Despondency is defined by Dr. Nicole Rojas as rejection of the present moment is God's good gift. We fail to care about things that should actually matter to us, such as cultivating a life of spiritual effort or seeking the well-being of our neighbor. This then leads to apathy where the danger turns into us neglecting everything. And once we neglect everything and fall into apathy, we then find ourselves in this second thing we ask to be taken from us, 
from the prayer of St. Ephraim, and that is sloth. Sloth. A few years ago, when I lived in Florida, I worked at a, a timeshare company, and I was offered a promotion, which sent me to a larger resort than the one that I, that I worked at. And the job was horrible. <laughs> it was horrible. And I didn't get along with my bosses at all, or, or my staff. I mean, I, and I, looking back, I can recognize my immaturity in some areas, but I also recognize that the atmosphere there was almost completely unbearable and toxic. And I found myself in a pattern as a result that lasted over a year. I would wake up super early in the morning because I had a long drive and they opened early. I would have to drive to work. I would work my shifts. I'd go home. I'd eat lunch. I'd take a nap for a couple of hours. I'd wake up, eat dinner, watch TV, and then go back to bed. And the only bright spots in all of that were my days off and watching No Reservations on the Travel Channel. And if any of my friends from Florida are watching, they can attest to this. What I realize now is that despondency had worked its way into me and had given way to sloth. I saw no reason to even try and discipline my staff or to try and even get them to hold the corporate standards. What's the point when my boss would just override me? So I wasn't motivated to do anything. I just wallowed in the toxicity of my work environment and escaped through TV games and drinking. Sloth. And the scary thing is I could, I could justify it all. I could justify it all. And that's why sloth is more than just mere laziness. Like, laziness, I think, can be a part of it, right? Proverbs will say things like, go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. But I like what Father Alexander Schmemann wrote when he said that sloth is strange laziness and a passivity of our entire being, which always pushes us down rather than up, which constantly convinces us that no change is possible and therefore desirable. It is, in fact, a deeply rooted cynicism which to every spiritual challenge responds, what for? And makes our life one tremendous spiritual warfare. I think one example we see in scripture of sloth at work is in the story of David and Bathsheba, as laid out in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11, verses 1 to 2, which says this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings went out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. As it happened, late one afternoon when he arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And we, if we've read the story or been in church long enough, we've most likely heard the rest of the story. If you haven't, go back and finish reading 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. So right away, we see some important things worth mentioning here, right? The first sentence lays out the time of year. The rainy season is over. It's time to go back on campaign. David is continuing a war against the Ammonites, and he's besieging a city. But the narrator notes this fact. David remained at Jerusalem in his house, his palace. And the rest of the story unfolds. David takes Bathsheba, a married woman, into his bed. She gets pregnant. He tries to fool the husband, who is a loyal soldier, who he has then placed in the fiercest fighting so he would die. And then when all that happens, he marries Bathsheba and is fairly content with everything until the prophet Nathan comes and confronts him with his sin and shakes his finger in David's face and says, You are the man. You are the man. As a result, the baby dies, and David, until the end of his life, 
even though he's forgiven by God, he still has to deal with turmoil in his family and in his kingdom. And this is why sloth is so deadly. It's that we might even be aware of its presence. But, but sometimes it manifests itself when we do what we know we shouldn't do. And then things that we know to do begin to fall away. They begin to fall away. I like what Father Schmemann says. He, he calls it a deeply rooted cynicism. Which to every spiritual challenge responds, what for? And makes our life one tremendous spiritual waste. Sloth is a spiritual wasteland. Sloth and despondency together is a place, it's a home where faith goes to die. Sloth and idleness are potent magnifiers of temptation, and that's why monastics are kept working and praying and working and praying because idleness and sloth are tremendous tools used by the evil one. Let's look at the third thing St. Ephraim asks to be taken away from him, lust of power. St. Augustine in his writings, he noted that human desire, when pointing towards what it should be drawn towards, it's good. But because of the effects of sin, our desires inevitably will move us towards sin without the intervention of divine grace. Lust then is something that curves desire away from what the initial desire was made for, Ultimately, union with God, right? And then back in on oneself, resulting in catastrophe. The human person becoming overcome with the fulfillment of their disordered desires. Now, this is dangerous because our desires are disordered by sin and death. And lust for power focuses our desire away from the love of God and love for one's neighbor. And I mentioned this briefly in Wednesday night's brief reflection on the readings from Psalm 3. But a good example of this in action is the character of Absalom, one of David's sons who tried to steal the kingdom and almost succeeded. Lust for power. 2 Samuel 15, verses 2 through 6 says, And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, Hey, what city are you? Where, where are you from? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. Listen to this. So Absalom stole the heart's the men of Israel. His lust for power, or something that was never meant for him to have. And Absalom's lust for power led him to try and steal the kingdom. David had to flee Jerusalem, and Absalom went to such an extreme to replace his father with himself that the very same roof that David was chilling out on watching Bathsheba bathe, the very same roof, roof Absalom put up a tent took all of his father's concubines that his father left behind and knew them in the biblical sense in the sight of everyone. This is the ultimate slap in the face. And one couldn't help but think, that's a little bit extreme, don't you think? Because his father's counselor came on his side and told him to do that, but he didn't tell him to set, up, set it up on the roof and do it in the sight of all the people. He just said, you know, just do it. But Absalom took it a step further. 
is lust for power in tandem with his lust. And commentators note that this is a complete usurpation of David's reign and an act that would have been completely unforgivable. And what results from this? War and death. And all of this actually has its origins in David's own sin against the Lord, which we saw just a few moments ago. But when you read the story, we see that even through all this, David still asks his generals to spare Absalom's life in battle. But as general Joab does not listen and kills him when he gets a chance, as Absalom's fleeing, the, the, the story goes on and on about how he loved and cared for his hair and was very concerned about his appearance. And he had this long, luscious, I don't know if he's Pantene pro if my wife's watching, she can probably tell you what the best stuff is to keep your hair nice and shiny and smooth and healthy, right? But he, he did that, and he had that in his hair, and he, it was so long and beautiful and curly. As he's escaping from David's servants, he's riding his mule, he goes under a tree, his hair gets caught in the branches, the mule runs off, and he's hanging there by his hair from the branches, and he's killed. A perfect example of what Father Schmemann wrote when he said, if my life is not oriented toward God, not aimed at eternal values, it will inevitably become selfish and self-centered, and this means that all other beings will become means of my own self-satisfaction. God, that's so powerful. If my life is not oriented towards God, not aimed at eternal values, it will inevitably become selfish and self-centered, and this means that all other beings will become means of my own self-satisfaction. That means our lust for power will drive us to use other people so we can satisfy ourselves. But what that does, brothers and sisters, leads to increasing lack of satisfaction, which then leads us to double and triple and quadruple down on the thing that we're trying to use to give us satisfaction. But because we can only be truly satisfied in God, as St. Augustine notes in his writings, Sin turns that towards something else. That is why in Lent and in repentance, we are orienting our life around God, around our eternal values, because it keeps us from self-centeredness and selfishness, which is, which is why Christianity, it, it, Christianity is not something that we add to the life that we already live. Christianity is not something that here's our, our public life and here's our private life. And we add Christianity to our private life has nothing to do with our public lives at all. No. Christianity is the core around which everything else orbits. Everything else. The fourth thing, idle talk. Here's the thing about what we think is idle talk. It's not idle, right? I-D-L-E. It's not idle, and it's destructive. Idle talk takes many forms, I think. Gossip complaining, slander. These are all born from and in idleness. And in the book of Numbers, we have an example of this at work among Moses' own brother and sister, Aaron Aaron and Miriam. In Numbers 12, 1-4, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman who he had married, where he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us too? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. So look what started the whole ball rolling in this story. Aaron and Miriam speaking against, gossiping about Moses' wife Zipporah. 
Now, if you know the story of the life of Moses, Moses meets Zipporah after he flees from Egypt, after killing the Egyptian who was fighting with one of his own people. He helps her and her sisters water their animals when other people try to drive them away. And so her father says, why did you leave him there? Bring him into our home. And her father, Jethro, invites Moses into his home. And Moses becomes responsible for the flocks and winds up marrying Zipporah. And and one point in Moses' story, we even find Zipporah doing something Moses should have, and the Lord sparing Moses' life because of her actions. Right? So from there, we have gossip about Moses' wife. Wow, she's the wife of she's she's the, the, the daughter of a of a of a shepherd. Of a shepherd. But we know that that her father was also a priest of, of God. But this gossip then turns into prideful comparison. Sure, you know, God uses Moses to do stuff, but God uses me too. God uses, like, yeah, sure, okay, God tasked Moses and gave him this staff and the ability to, to work the miraculous, but I'm the one that Moses talks to that tells, tells me to tell the people what God said. I've been into the glory of the Lord. I've been into the presence of the Lord. I led worship in the tabernacle. When the Egyptians were drowned in the sea, I'm the one that led everybody in the singing and the praising. God speaks to Moses, but God speaks to us too. Moses sure must think he's something great. He must think that he's a high horse. He should be knocked down off of his pedestal a peg or two if he knew what was good for him. Probably the scariest verse is the end of verse 2. The Lord heard it. The Lord hears all of our gossiping, all of our complaining, and every word spoken in idleness. And we even hear Jesus say, every idle word spoken, guess what? We will be held accountable for. That scares me because I've said some idle, stupid stuff, and I'm sure at some point in your life you have too. We all have. And that's why we ask the Lord to take that from us. To take that from us. Because idle talk is destructive. Just as lust for power focuses us back in on ourselves, so does idle talk. And so does sloth. And so does the despondency. It takes all of our focus away from everything God is doing everything God is calling us to do, everything that God has for us in Jesus Christ, and it focuses on ourselves by pushing us towards laziness, towards apathy, towards apathy. And so what happens is we need those things to be constantly removed for us, or we need to be made aware that those things are constantly at war in us and that we need to get them out. And bound up with what we just laid out, I believe, is a summary of all the struggles we'll face in the Christian life as all sin is bound up in, I think, in these four things. And so what we need is something to replace those. It's not enough just to say, take this away from me. When you take away a bad habit, what do you need to replace it with? You need to replace it with a good habit, but you have to establish the good habit. So when we ask God to take these things away from us, 
We then need to ask him to give us something in return. And that's what we're going to look at next week. The four things that we ask God to grant to us in this Lenten prayer of St. Ephraim. Chastity, meekness of mind, patience, and love. And these four things act as the anti-venom to the venom of sin that is still at work inside of the human heart. But in all of this, we can be trustful of and in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through His life and death and resurrection. And that, that will allow us then to pray along with St. Ephraim, apply to my afflictions the medicine of Thy salvation and the passion of Thy help. Thy sign can become a medicine to heal us all. And so to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be all glory together with his Father who is from everlasting and is all holy good and life-creating spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. If you have a few minutes, I'd like to ask you to go to gofundme.com slash zionstonechurchrepairfund. Our bell tower is in need of some major renovation and repairs, and we could use whatever help you're able to give to us. If you'd like to find out more about us, check us out on our Facebook page, Zion Stone UCC, or on our website, zionstoneucc.com. Thanks again for listening. I pray that these sermons will continue to strengthen you in your walk with Jesus Christ, and may the blessings of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you. Thank you.